You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Graham Newbig, who is an associate professor at Carnegie Mellon University. His research focuses on language and its role in human communication, with the goal of breaking down barriers in human-to-human or human-to-machine communication through the development of NLP technologies. Graham's PhD thesis is titled Unsupervised Learning of Lexical Information for Language Processing Systems, which he completed in 2012 at Kyoto University. We discuss his PhD work related to the fundamental processing units that NLP systems use to process text. We cover the non-parametric Bayesian models that he used throughout the thesis, how the segmentation and alignment problems relate to those encountered today, and discuss how his perspective on machine translation has evolved over time. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesisreview. Your donations are important for helping to cover the costs of running the show, so a big thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Graham Newbig with Unsupervised Learning of Lexical Information for Language Processing Systems on the Thesis Review. In your thesis, you looked into this question of what is the fundamental processing unit for natural language systems? So things like words, characters, or even what it means to be a word. And of course, this is going to vary by the language that we're looking at. So maybe a fun question to start. If you could design your own language, how would you deal with word separation? So would it have word delimiters? And do you think you'd design it to have an alphabet or be more logographic? Yeah, that's a great idea, a uh, great question. And the it, it depends if I wanted to aim for something that was practical or something that was fun. Um, if I wanted it to be something that was fun, I would definitely uh, pick a logographic language like Chinese or Japanese because uh, it's so interesting to see where the characters came from and, and what they mean. And, you know, you can put a single character on a... Uh, sign or something, and it actually has a meaning. Um, however, when you're when you're learning it, it's not obviously quite as practical because you need to learn a thousand, two thousand, five thousand characters. Uh, so, if I was aiming for practicality, I, I would uh, pick a phonetic writing system, I guess. And with respect to word boundaries, yeah, I think word boundaries are are useful, especially if you're doing NLP. So, um, in the interest of my uh, my sanity as an NLP person. I, I think I had some word boundaries. And then there's also a question about uh, morphology. So like how, how rich a conjugation system uh, would you make? And it, it's an interesting uh, question about what I would do um, there, I, I don't have any like strong ideas, but like one one thing that we know about language in general is that languages are kind of optimized for efficient communication. So if you make a trade off in one place, uh, you're going to have to uh, you know make it more complicated in another place or make it more verbose in another place. So if you didn't have lots of conjugation, you'd probably have to have lots of like auxiliary verbs or something like that, like English does. So. Yeah, it's a good question, but I'm not uh, I'm not sure exactly how I would do it. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's a good point about the characters. And in my own experience, when I was trying to learn 
uh, Mandarin characters, I kind of wished that my mind worked like some supervised learning system where I could just train it on some data set. But it's very difficult to uh, for humans, or at least for me, to, to learn the characters. Yeah, it's interesting how computers and humans are good at very different things. So, you know, computers can memorize your entire vocabulary in minutes or, you know, seconds, mm -hmm. uh, where humans struggle with that a huge amount. And then computers can't recognize or understand language and context, uh, and humans excel at doing that. So, um, yeah, we're just uh, good at different things, at least for the moment. So. Well, yeah, I'm sure that these issues about, um, you know, segmentation and the fundamental units will come up a lot in today's conversation. But I thought maybe we'd start by going back to before your PhD. So um, maybe starting with undergrad, was language always an interest for you? And did you always know that you wanted to do research in this area? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I did my undergrad at University of Illinois, and there I was in computer science. But I, when I came in, I thought I wanted to be either an entrepreneur or a researcher, uh, because during high school I had dabbled in, you know, like making websites and putting advertising on them and earning money and stuff like that. Um, and my main interest technically was actually music processing uh, so much that I almost uh, transferred to computer engineering. Um, I'm glad I, I didn't now because uh, I'm, I really like NLP. Um, but I, I got interested in NLP after I studied abroad in Japan my junior year and learned Japanese and was like fascinated by the language. And then in my senior year, I, I did a research project for my machine learning class uh, which I think was pretty good, but we didn't ever publish a paper about. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and that's how I got started. Um, and then I took a break for a little while to like actually teach uh, English in Japan and work as a translator and interpreter. It, but I knew by then that I really wanted to do research. So then eventually I went back to do my PhD after a few years off. So, so it was maybe learning, uh, it was maybe learning the Japanese language that made you interested in uh, NLP. Yeah, for, for sure. That was definitely the turning point. And then, so the title of your thesis is Unsupervised Learning of Lexical Information for Language Processing Systems. Um, so you start your PhD, and at, at what point did the thesis start to take shape? So the focus on this question of segmentation, also these probabilistic models, different things that we'll discuss today. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think the theme of my thesis is somewhat coherent, uh, but maybe a little bit by accident. So the when I first started out in my PhD, I was actually working on speech processing on something completely different, uh, specifically converting between spoken utterances that have lots of like fillers, like um and uh, or disfluencies where you start saying one thing and then you go back and say something else or something like this. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about speech, if you're in a speech lab, of course, one of the things that everybody thinks about is identifying word boundaries or phoneme boundaries or uh, forced alignment where you want to find where words appear in, in speech. So that was kind of on the top of my mind. And at the same time, as a side project, I worked on word segmentation, supervised word segmentation for Japanese. And then at the same time, there was uh, I started working with uh, machine translation be during an internship and my supervisor in machine translation basically said, oh, you need to look at Bayesian nonparametrics, which we're probably going to talk about later. And putting all of these things together kind of formed this in my mind near you know, the third or fourth year of my, my PhD, where it was like, hey, we can use these, this mathematical tool of Bayesian nonparametrics to do word segmentation, but maybe we can do it for speech recognition or machine translation and learn everything um, kind of un, in an unsupervised fashion. And I think basically the idea was like, 
I had all these disparate projects that I did separately um, and they kind of like clicked in my mind and came together and uh, eventually that formed my thesis topic. So the segmentation you said is kind of a natural thing that you end up thinking about when you're working with audio. And then maybe since you're working with Japanese, it also comes up because of the segmentation. Yeah. And Japanese doesn't delimit word boundaries like we talked about before. So you need to, that's the first thing you need to think about before you even start uh, processing the language. Yeah, I see. Do you think that, um, so I guess one thing we do in this podcast is to kind of jump back and forth between the past and the present. So do you think that this is still an issue with today's systems? So maybe thinking about language models or translation systems, the kind of conventional approach has become learning this BPE dictionary, and that's going to kind of define the segmentation. Do you think that that's ideal and that we still need to think about what is the kind of processing unit that we should use today? So um, the funny thing is BPE, uh, the success of BPE has validated exactly what I uh, was arguing for in my thesis, which is that we should be doing unsupervised segmentation for uh, you know, natural language processing systems because it's an unsupervised segmentation algorithm. I think there are probably better unsupervised segmentation algorithms that we could be using, but I think you know BPE is or um, you know other things like the unigram-based segmentation model and that's implemented by default in sentence piece. Um, these algorithms are very, very fast very, very efficient to apply and convenient. So I think um, there's an argument for using those even over more complicated things that work better, which is why, you know, it really started taking off when BPE and, uh, you know, sentence piece and stuff like that were introduced. Yeah, like one, one issue, like potentially, is with numbers. It's kind of weird if you look at like GPT's uh, BPE dictionary, it might have one token for 21 and then two tokens for 12. So for one and two and these like weird oddities, but yeah, I guess the question is like, does that actually have some practical impact that it's worth changing? Yeah. And it, it definitely does. Um, and it particularly does when you're talking about things, uh, that are either cross-lingual or cross dialect or using noisy text on the web because for example if you're talking about cross lingual applications the segmentation of nearly the same word might be very different across two languages so if you have a word that differs by only one character uh it might be split into three bpe tokens in a less you know frequent language or uh, a single BPE token in a language where you have more training data, for example. And we actually have a, a paper that examines this issue or talks about this issue called uh, multilingual neural machine translation with soft decoupled decoding, uh, soft decoupled encoding. And the um, and basically, you can see that when these sorts of uh, kind of differences between the different languages appear, then that can cause major problems. So I think you have you kind of have two choices. You have one choice is fixing the BPE so it's kind of more consistent across languages, which is actually what one of the methods in my thesis attempted to do, or um, give up on BPE style segmentation and try to have a more consistent kind of like word segmentation for longer units, but then use subword information when calculating your uh, representations for each word. So I think there are definitely ways to address both of these. And if you're really serious about building a system like a multilingual system, multi-dialect system, uh, et cetera, et cetera, there are definitely things that you should be uh, thinking about even now. Yeah, that actually reminds me of Sebastian Reuter was also on the podcast, and he had mentioned that in the multilingual setting, uh, BPE can be problematic, especially when you think about the tokens that are learned for more high-resource languages versus low-resource languages. Yep. So then we kind of alluded to it, but one focus in your thesis is on these non-parametric Bayesian models. 
Um, did you maybe just want to introduce at a high level for those that aren't familiar um, the parametric versus non-parametric distinction and then why you chose to use this in several parts of your thesis? Sure. Um, so the parametric versus non-parametric distinction essentially is um, in a parametric model, like most neural network models that we use nowadays, the number of parameters is fixed in advance and doesn't vary with the size of the training data. Uh, so yeah, as I mentioned, this could be like a neural network model. A non-parametric model is a model where the number of parameters in the model varies with the, the size or variety of the training data. And some examples of this might include uh, k-nearest neighbors based classification models, where you use every single training example to, um, to ba in basically your classification. It could also include things like uh, n-gram language models, because in n-gram language models, you increase the number of parameters uh, that you have in the model based on what data you have in your training corpus. Mm -hmm. um, if you add the non-parametric Bayesian models, uh, the main distinction here is that you have a prior on what kinds of models you expect to see. And this prior tends to favor simple models uh, as opposed to complex models. And so the idea is that you want to create a model that's expressive enough to fit your data, so reduce your log likely, uh, negative log likelihood, like you know, I think most machine learning people are familiar with. Um, but at the same time, you want to have the model be as simple as possible, so you don't um, uh, like uh, overfit or create a model that's too large. And so basically, it will remove parts of the model, or it will encourage the the model to remove parts of the model that would overcomplicate things and basically cause, uh, you know, overfitting or uh, ridiculously large models. Mm -hmm. And within the context of my thesis, what one of the things my thesis learned was kind of a, a quote unquote vocabulary. So if you're familiar with BPE, for example, we have the BPE vocabulary. Um, and in, when you're learning BPE or a sentence piece or something like that, you specify the vocabulary ahead of time. You say, I want 16,000 or I want 32,000 uh, tokens. What the non-parametric model allows you to do in this case is it will learn as many tokens in the vocabulary as it needs to fit the model, but the prior pulls back to reduce the size of the vocabulary. So basically, it automatically adjusts the size of the vocabulary based on um, how many tokens it thinks you need to fit uh, the data. So that's why these like non-parametric ba uh, Bayesian techniques are particularly well suited to the uh, the like vocabulary learning problem, uh, which is what I was tackling in my thesis. Do you think that in I, I guess just speaking at at a high level still, do you think that in general in today's settings with larger amounts of data and larger models, these types of models might be we might run into issues using these to, for example, learn a vocabulary? Or do you think that investigating these models today could, could still be promising? So I, I think it is very promising. And the reason why I think it's very promising is there's recently been a move to non-parametric models in, um, in neur like neural models for language modeling or question answering as well. And for example, there are models that basically process all of Wikipedia. Um, and then you build a question answering model where you have a latent variable, which is one of the sentences in Wikipedia. You look up the sentence in Wikipedia. And then based on that sentence in Wikipedia, you then do question answering or language modeling or something like this. And so essentially what you have there is this is also a non-parametric model. It's a model where, you know, the, all of the data that you processed at training time, it becomes part of your model. Um, but now let's say you wanted to put this on your cell phone or something like that. That would be, you know, a problem, right? And so I think the non-parametric Bayesian statistics uh, really provide you with a way where you could have a model that automatically adjusts um, 
to use whatever data that you need in order to do your job well, but at the same time, uh, you know, reducing the things that you don't need. And um, we actually have a, a paper that just came out at NeurIPS uh, called Learning Sparse Prototypes for Text Generation that attempts to apply uh, this there. So it, it, it essentially um, has a prior on how many templates that you can use uh, to kind of learn a, a retrieval-based language model like the one I d just described, and you can adjust whether you want more or less by adjusting the parameters of the priors. So I think there's lots of interesting applications uh, still nowadays for non-parametric Bayesian statistics uh, in neural models, for example. And yeah, and that, that was called the sparse neural editor. I, I saw you had this talk, and it was called non-parametric language modeling yep. at EMNLP. Yes. So yeah, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. It was a nice talk. Um, so then maybe going into the first application that you looked in, into in your thesis, it was on uh, speech processing, uh, but also language modeling. So actually trying to learn a language model directly from raw audio. I guess you briefly touched on it, but could you just give some, some background or some backstory on how you got interested in this problem? and then the type of model that you ended up developing? Yeah, certainly. Um, so the my interest in this problem largely stemmed from my previous uh, interest in research. And I, uh, sorry, in my previous research. And there were a bunch of moving parts in this model. Um, this is definitely not something that's easy to implement. Uh, <laughs> For sure, but like basically, um, in my first research project on transforming spoken language into written language, we used a tool called weighted finite state transducers. And weighted finite state transducers, I won't give the whole tutorial, obviously, but basically, um, they're a, a type of uh, weighted finite. They're a type of automaton uh, or a graph uh, that tells you how you can convert one, uh, like strings in one language to strings in another language. So to give a concrete example, you could convert um, a bunch of unsegmented characters into words using uh, something like this. And you express this in a graph structure, and then they have lots of nice properties that kind of allow them to combine together. And these are pretty widely used in speech recognition systems, for example. Mm -hmm. And speech recognition systems, like they make a cascade of these graphs, uh, one going from uh, like the speech waveform into uh, phonemes, kind of the units of speech, and then going from phonemes into words. And then at the very end, you have a, a language model, like an engram language model or something like this to rescore to make it a uh, kind of like fluent sentence. And then at the end, you might have like recurrent neural network or transformer rescoring or something like that, but that's something separate. Mm -hmm. um, so what I, what I was thinking was, um, this is great if you have lots of data, but what if you were interested in working on a, a language where you didn't have lots of data? You can still do phoneme recognition. Um, and the reason why you can do phoneme recognition is because the phonemes in all of the languages in the world are kind of essentially, um, they're not shared across all the languages in the world, but there's only so many different sounds that your mouth can make because we all have mouths that are in the same shape. So you can basically train a, a universal phoneme recognition model. And so if you train that, you could get essentially a bunch of candidates for these phonemes. And then what if we could take these phonemes and convert them into uh, like strings that are coherent words that actually have meaning in, uh, in like the language itself? Mm -hmm. And the issue with this is the phoneme recognition model is not going to be very good at first because you're applying it to you know, a language that you haven't uh, trained on. And whenever you apply it to a language that you haven't trained on, that's an issue. Um, so what if we could create a graph that represents all the ambiguity that we have in this phoneme recognition result? 
and then pick out the kind of reasonable looking word strings within these graphs. And um, so this appealed to me two, in two ways. Um, the first way it appealed to me is, you know, we do language learning as, as human beings. And one of the first things we do in language learning as a human being is learn words and pick out words from a stream of unsegmented audio. So this is a very like fundamental thing that we're doing uh, or that, you know, babies or kids are, are doing every day. Mm -hmm. And the second reason it appealed to me was it's really like cool algorithmically. You need dynamic programming, you need uh, machine learning, you need all the other things. So if we could take this kind of like sophisticated methodology and apply it to a problem that is, you know, of maybe maybe of academic interest, then that would be that would be fun. And I actually remember thinking of this idea after I had gone to a bar with my friends and I was walking 30 minutes home. I, I remember exactly when I came up with the idea and I was like, wow, that would be so cool if we were able to do that. <laughs> um, and uh, then I, I spent the next, you know, six months or uh, eight months or something like that actually doing it. And it was a, a lot of fun. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know, again, like talking about the, the present day, do you know if this is a common problem today? So trying to go right from the audio to a language model and could we potentially like incorporate that as another signal into just learning a language model also from text? Yeah. So as, as far as I know, I, I haven't been in the like core speech field for a while. So I, I don't want to over overstate that, uh, that nobody has tried this recently, but like, as far as I know, people have not um, been focused in, as much on the kind of unsupervised language modeling task, like the one I just talked about. Um, there is a lot of really interesting work uh, going on, you know, right now on better unsupervised learning methods to learn acoustic representations. Mm. Um, so better, better methods for essentially taking in speech waveforms and pre-training representations in an unsupervised uh, manner so that you can very quickly adapt speech recognition systems later. Um, but the idea of learning a language model is kind of, number one, it's more language specific because, you know, as I mentioned, we all have the same mouths, uh, mouths. So, you know, we all say similar uh, sounds, but then um, the words that we speak are, you know, largely arbitrary. Um, and maybe completely different across languages. So I think it's a really interesting unsupervised learning problem uh, that, you know, we haven't really, like, revisited yet. Um, so if somebody listening wants to try it, I'd, I'd be happy to yeah. hear the yeah. result, basically. Yeah. I always say as long as they cite this part of the podcast, then it should be, should be good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so you mentioned the weighted finite state automaton or the transducers. And so here, uh, I think you use them to derive a sampling procedure, or that was one of the uses. Um, maybe like stepping back, do you think that these types of formalisms, have they become like less prevalent over time? Or maybe is it just because they're specific in speech and so we don't see as much of them in NLP? So, yeah, that, that's a really good question. And I think the answer is yes, they have become less prevalent over time. Um, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist now. And it also doesn't mean that they aren't useful now. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why is because the formalism itself is actually relatively easily interpretable and manipulable by a human actor who wants to interface with a system. So for example, uh, linguists who are looking to build an analyzer of word forms or something like this, the very first thing they do will not be generate lots of training data. It will, the first thing they'll do is write a weighted finite state transducer, weighted finite state automaton. Um, it's not that that doesn't have problems I, like you know, it might be able to analyze words, but not disambiguate which one is correct in the case of, in the face of ambiguity. But 
at the very least, it, you know, they could express all possible, you know, possibilities, which whittles down the space of possibilities to, you know, a small plausible set. And then if you wanted to apply a machine learning model to disambiguate from those possibilities, it would, would be way easier than um, doing something uh, else. So I think like uh, on one hand in machine learning, there's always a pursuit for, you know, end to end or like simple or something like this. Um, large, largely, I mean, you know, it's attractive in one way. It's also a little bit out of la laziness, right? You know, <laughs> um, it's the easy, it's the easy thing to do uh, compared to the harder thing to do, which would be to write a search algorithm over a weighted, weighted finite state transducer and, um, you know, make everything, uh, make everything work there. Um, but I, I think they're particularly useful if you want to essentially interface with some sort of human curator or something like that. And I, I've actually used them in that way uh, in some of my work. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I thought just looking through some of your other work, maybe one thing that was potentially related to this is you had this neural lattice language model and that seemed like closely connected in idea space. Yeah, that, that's a that's a funny uh, success story in my uh, in my class where I I personally really like weighted finite state machines and weighted finite state transducers. So I taught them in one of my classes, and one of the students who took that class, uh, Jacob, he basically uh, took that idea and ran with it and was like, "I'm going to uh, I'm going to make a lattice language model," mm -hmm. um, and he he did and it. it did some very interesting things. Like, for example, um, the, the lattices are a very convenient way of expressing that you could have multiple possible word segmentations in a neural language model. They're also a very convenient way of expressing that you could have multiple possible word senses in a language model. So run could mean, um, you know, run a marathon, run a business, or run in a stocking. So if you uh, if you predict all of them, you can see that the uh, basically the accuracy of the language model goes up. So yeah, uh, that was very much inspired by weighted state uh, machines. Yeah, and then maybe to move to the to the next application area that you looked into, it's machine translation. So you looked into these phrase based models and uh, using this inver inversion transduction grammar. Um, maybe to start, like, because nowadays you still work on machine translation a lot. Thinking back, like, what was your motivation for working on translation? And do you think that you kind of still hold the same motivations for working on it today? That's a, so that's a good question. So why did I first want to work on translation? I think it was largely based on my experience as a second language speaker, or I also worked as a translator and interpreter for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And so I had done it myself. I, I was very interested in it. Um, I think my further motivation now is that I'm really interested kind of of it being very potentially impactful societally. So like improving the equity of our uh, language processing systems um, by making them applicable to lots of different languages. So I, I think uh, now my initial motivation still stands, you know, like academic interest in the, in the idea itself. And on top of that, I further have, you know, societal uh, drive to like make things better. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In your thesis, the models were these phrase-based models. And I just wanted to get a sense of, at the time, did it seem like this phrase-based, these, these types of models were going to be around for a while and that potentially it was like a matter of just scaling them up? Or did, did you have some sense that they had some downsides and they were going to be replaced by something in the future? So, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, the phrase-based models, so I did my thesis from 2010 to 2012. Um, and during that time, their phrase-based models were the mainstream, but there were new 
ish uh, syntax based models. And I, I think I was working on the phrase based models um, largely for convenience, but shortly after I graduated and shortly before neural uh, MT came around and, and broke everything, right? <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I started working on syntax based models. And I think even near the end of my thesis, it was pretty clear to me that phrase based models were just essentially fundamentally the wrong way to solve the problem. Mm. Um, and you had to uh, come up with lots of hacks uh, to you know, get them to work properly. And I think the reason why is because um, you know, they fundamentally didn't have the ability to handle kind of the hierarchical syntactic structure of language. Now, syntax-based models did have this ability but the problem is analyzing syntax is hard. Um, even defining what you mean by syntax is hard. And because of this, I, I think we were making lots of progress around 2015, 2016 and making them actually work better. Um, but they were still uh, too brittle. And then NeuralMT came out and I would have never believed a priori that NeuralMT would actually be able to handle syntax properly and generalize and things like this. Uh, but it turns out that it does. And so after I read the sequence sequence learning with, uh, with neural networks paper, um, the, like immediately after that, I started implementing LSTMs in C++ and, uh, and like building, building my own neural MT toolkit. And it was like, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure I actually believe this paper, uh, the results in this paper, but if it's true, like, this is the way forward. This is the, <laughs> this yeah. is the future. So, um, yeah, it, it was a very, I mean, it's still an interesting time, but that was a really interesting transition to see the whole, you know, um, field completely turn on its head. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it sounds like a mix in, in the sense that it was somewhat unexpected, but you had some sense that there was something wrong, at least with the phrase-based paradigm. Yeah. Was it similar for n-gram language models? Because like uh, Chris Dyer had an interesting talk, or I just saw a tweet about it, but he was basically showing a graph of as you scale up n-gram language models, you know, performance is increasing. But then when we move to a new paradigm, the neural paradigm, then it's just like a complete phase shift in the graph. So it'd be tempting to just say like, oh, let's just keep scaling these up. But then at some point someone had to think, you know, we might actually need a new approach. Yeah, and I think that's particularly relevant now when we see so many people scaling, you know, transformer models up, right? You mm -hmm. know, um, I, I think the difference between transformer models and engram models though is engram models clearly are not sufficient. You know, they're like, there are things that theoretically they cannot do. Uh, for transformers, transformers are uh, universal function approximators of sequence-sequence functions. Um, there's actually an iClear paper by exactly that name in iClear uh, 2020, I think. But uh, mm -hmm. they're, they can model any sequence-sequence function. So it's not 100% clear that they would ever be insufficient. So maybe scale was the only thing. Um, I tend to believe that's not the case because I've seen them fail enough that I, uh, I know, you know, there are certainly issues, but I think that's a big difference between n-grams, which are theoretically insufficient and transformers where we can't say that's the case. For example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the problem does seem harder in this case because the thought experiment is a bit different. It's like, well, if you had a universal function approximator and you kept giving it more and more data, then maybe that actually would be sufficient. But like you're saying, there's, um, there does seem to be some cracks in the armor potentially. Yep. So maybe at, at whatever level you want to talk about, could you talk about the, this probabilistic alignment model that you developed in the thesis and it involved this, uh, this model or object called the inversion transduction grammar? Yeah, certainly. So the interesting thing is, um, the model that I devised here, I don't even remember how I found this paper, but it was based on a, a PhD thesis uh, by Carl DeMarkin at MIT in 1996, which was far before I started 
you know, researching. And basically the idea is that you do binary merges of characters uh, based largely on frequency until you find words. And if you're familiar with uh, byte pair encoding, BPE, it's basically the same idea. Um, and my contribution on top of that was largely to apply it to the multilingual setting, where instead of doing binary merges of characters in one language, you jointly do binary merges of characters in two languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you have a parsing algorithm, basically, that tries to align uh, characters or character strings in languages, in, in both languages, and then do a binary, uh, merge them up in a binary tree all the way to the top of the sentence. Um, so one big difference between what I did and what, for example, BPE does, is BPE did the, does this over the entire corpus at once in a joint uh, fashion, whereas um, I used a method called Gibbs sampling, where what Gibbs sampling does is it essentially looks at a single instance. In this particular case, it was a single sentence and samples according to a probability distribution what uh, what like merges you do or, or things like this. Um, and so now actually recently there's also methods called uh, like BPE dropout or subword regularization. And what these models do is they do sampling of different uh, BPE merge operations or different subword segmentations. And so if you can imagine a model that essentially did that during training according to a probabilistic model, um, but it did it in both languages at the same time jointly and tried to learn a joint vocabulary, that's like what my what my uh, method did. Um, it also incorporated the kind of non-parametric Bayesian uh, statistics uh, that I talked about before. And that the reason why you would want to do that is essentially um, there's a degenerate solution that maximizes the likelihood of the whole corpus where you just memorize each pair of sentences as a single vocabulary item and output them. Uh, so the non-parametric Bayesian statistics make sure that you're like balancing the complexity of the model, how many vocabulary items the model learns and the ability to fit the whole data. Um, So I I think uh, that's kind of the high level overview. Um, One one question that you might ask is, well, so why would I, you know, if, for example, for machine translation, why would I use BPE instead of the model that I uh, I just talked about? And I think the answer is there's an O n to the six uh, sampling algorithm uh, included in learning uh, learning this model. Mm-hmm. And I did I did a bunch of things to try to make it faster, but it, it's still pretty difficult. So um, I think this is the method that I, I proposed here is probably better than BPE, but it's just uh, relatively uh, expensive to apply. So it, it would be hard to actually feasibly do it for the large scale MT datasets that we're doing. Uh, nowadays, but was was the setup the same in the sense that uh, with BPE, you know, you learn the dictionary in one stage, and then you could train whatever model you want on that vocabulary. Was that the same here, where you design this model, you get some dictionary, and then you could train whatever machine learning model you wanted? Um, you you could do that, yes, um, and. Uh, I actually have a software toolkit, PyAline, that um, that implements this algorithm, and it's definitely possible to do. So you could feed that into a neural MT toolkit. I actually haven't tried it uh, myself. I probably should, but um, the uh, within the paper that I presented, I also did a thing that's kind of like specific to phrase-based translation, where I didn't just memorize. The phrases at the lowest level of the tree, but I also memorized the phrases all the way up the tree, which allowed you to memorize like uh, you know a one-word phrase or one subword phrase. Then the next uh, the next level would be like two subwords stuck together, then like four subwords stuck stuck together, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, all the way up the 
up the tree, so it could memorize longer phrases as well. So um, uh, I guess the answer is yes and no. You you could use it in that way, but this uh, I also did some other things that were specific to phrase-based MD. And then, uh, so one thing that was discussed in this section is just this idea of alignment. So I saw that nowadays, just recently, you actually worked on the problem of alignment with neural models. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like look back and, and see some some path of ideas between the alignment models that you were working on back then and this one that you're working on now? Like, what were the major steps or the major differences, or are they completely kind of separate things? Yeah, um, I I think that's a good question. The alignment models that we have done recently, just to give an idea um, it, about the the alignment method and like awesome aligner, our new. Uh, I, I can't take credit for the uh, for the acronym. The credit the credit for the acronym goes all to the first author Z. But um, it, it's basically um, a model that does alignment on top of uh, multilingual BERT, uh, and. There are certainly some connections, but not to my work personally. I think the bigger connections that we have are going back to the original IBM uh, word alignment models, which were which came out in like 1992 or something like this. And they used a method called hill climbing, where essentially you uh, find an alignment with the current best version of the model, you update the parameters, and then you... Um, uh, and then you continue training with those updated parameters. So what we're doing in our method is we are essentially doing self-training, which means we find the best alignment, and then we update the parameters of the neural model to try to improve the probability of that best alignment. Mm-hmm. And then there's another uh, idea that was somewhat inspired by a paper by um, Percy Liang, who uh Percy is now very well known for all kinds of things in NLP, but he actually, I think, started out doing machine translation. Um, And he has a very nice paper called Alignment by Agreement, where you basically try to learn bilingual alignments by doing them in one direction and then another direction. And we're using some ideas from there. So some of the ideas in our paper, despite the fact that we're now using BERT and other things like that, are inspired by this uh, much, much older work, I guess. And, and certainly, like, probably just having worked on these types of problems, it may be just the interests stay with you over time. Yeah, for sure. And I did notice in that paper, you used this uh, Kyoto free translation task. Mm-hmm. And there's a reference from 2011. So was that developed, something you developed during your PhD? Yeah, that was something I developed during my PhD. Uh, basically... This um, the actual data was developed by uh, the National Institute for Communication Technology and um, for Information and Communication Technology in uh, Japan. Um, and basically, what they did was they translated a whole bunch of articles from Wikipedia um, about uh, Kyoto, the actually the place where I did my PhD at Kyoto University, mm-hmm. and. Um, but they didn't turn it into a translation benchmark. So basically what I did was I took the data, I made trained dev and test uh, sets. I, um, I I put it online with a leaderboard and stuff like this to make it like conducive for empty research. But then also importantly, I created a, a data set of aligned uh, words between English and Japanese. And I think that's the only data set of uh, like word alignment information between English and Japanese still at least uh, available publicly that I know of. So um, it it shows that the algorithms that I used during my PhD are uh, probably more or less uh, useless now, but the data I created is, uh, <laughs> is still being used. So uh, maybe that's a lesson to the PhD students to, uh, to focus on data a little bit also. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And then, um, so going back to this inversion transduction grammar, I don't know if this is a well, uh, well-formed question, but I, I was just thinking, so we had Yoon Kim on the show and in some sense, like one thing he did is to take these, 
probable, probabilistic context-free grammar and in some sense neuralize them, uh, like parameterize them with neural networks. Uh, and we also had Aji Buso Jang on. And one thing she did is to take the LDA topic model, loosely speaking, and neuralize it by uh, parameterizing with neural networks. Do you think that something could be done with this transduction grammar that you use here? Or is this kind of just un unrelated to that? So I think it's it's totally feasible to do something like that. And there, there was also um, some really nice work by uh, Noah Smith on... Oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the exact term, but I, I think it's like pseudosynchronous grammars or something like this. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea about pseudosynchronous grammars was the grammar between two languages is not exactly the same, but it can be largely the same. So they had this kind of idea of, of soft alignment uh, between parallel sentences in multiple languages. And I think neural networks would be excellent at handling uh, something like that. So I could see it being applied to, you know, synchronous grammars like inversion transduction grammars where the the tree structure has to be exactly the same between the languages or like something like a pseudosynchronous grammar where the tree structure can be mostly the same uh, but not exactly the same. So I don't think anybody's done that, but I think it's something that uh, could definitely be done. And then, so so those were kind of the two major divisions in, in your thesis. So then thinking about after your PhD, if you could think of all your research as forming some kind of graph and it's been building as you've moved throughout your career, where do you see your PhD work? Is it the root of a tree or is it kind of a subgraph or a disjoint subgraph off on its own? How did it kind of develop from there? Yeah, so that, that's a really good question. Um, one thing I should note is after I finished my PhD, I immediately started a, a junior faculty position at a university in Japan. And the university in it, the way a lot of universities in Japan work is you actually have a research group with several faculty members in it, usually head, headed by a full professor. Um, and the research group I was in was all kinds of things. It was spoken language processing, dialogue, uh, speech recognition, machine translation, and things like this. So I kind of immediately jumped into this environment that was very diverse. And, you know, I was working with students who were working on very diverse topics. So I feel like um, my, my PhD, you know, I had a, a very densely connected subgraph. And then suddenly as a faculty member, it branched out a whole lot. Um, I, I've, I think I've debranched a little bit. I, I've focused a little bit more since I uh, moved to CMU in 2016. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's definitely at the root of like my interest in machine translation and multilingual processing and, and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. And then how, I guess we touched on it before, but then when the kind of rise of deep learning started to happen, how much did that shift the things that you were working on, the kind of perspective you had on the field? Yeah, so... I don't think it had a major shift in the applications that I was working on. Um, and I think in general, I'm many of the machine learning techniques that I have interest in are motivated, motivated by applications that I would eventually like to see work. So, you know, even if I am working on kind of core machine learning uh, things are motivated by problems that I, I've seen in, you know, machine translation or code generation or QA or uh, kind of things I'm interested in. So my, personally, I, I don't think it really affected the application style interests, but it really changed my toolbox or it changed it completely, basically. You know, as I mentioned the day I read the paper on sequence sequence learning with uh, with neural networks, I was like, "If this is real, this is the future." And then I actually gave a presentation at um, at a dialogue reading group uh, a couple days later, and I was like, "It's coming for dialogue next." 
<laughs> they were like, oh, no, dialogue is too complicated. You know, they'd never be able to do it. And I'm like, no, it's coming for dialogue next. <laughs> you watch. So um, I, I was, that, that was the turning point for me. There were certainly neural network methods before that. Um, but until they stopped being like a part of the existing systems and being like the system itself, I, I didn't like, I guess, wasn't really completely converted. So. And then do you think that like thinking back, I mean, one thing that's happened, not only due to deep learning, but just due to interest in machine learning in general, the field has been growing more and more. Do you think that something about the PhD process has changed versus when you were doing it? Or do you think that doing a PhD now is fundamentally uh, just very similar to doing a PhD when you were doing it? That's a good question. Um, maybe I should do another PhD and figure out. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Yeah, I guess you have a different perspective now. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have a pretty different perspective now. I, I feel like um, there's certainly more to keep up with. Just you know, there's more. There's more papers, which also kind of means there's more papers in your area. Um, I guess. One thing that I would like to say from my PhD is some of my best ideas came from reading stuff that wasn't in my area. Mm. Um, so I think no matter how like overwhelming the archive firehose is basically, um, spending at least some of your time looking at stuff from different uh, areas is probably a good idea. Be it like, you know, if you're NLP and working on machine learning, uh, if you're in NLP, you know, reading core machine learning papers or reading psychology papers or reading um, other other things like this. And, you know, very often nowadays, because I know NLP well, I actually enjoy reading those papers more, maybe, because um, they give you a broader perspective. So I, I think that's definitely something that it, it's probably harder to do now because you have the temptation to look at the 10 archive papers that you need to read that came out yesterday, but it's, it's probably a, a good idea. It, it'll make you better as a researcher overall. Yeah, I see. So then there's two questions that I'd like to end the thesis review with. Uh, so the first is, if you could look back and think about what your objective function was when you were doing a PhD and what it is now, uh, do you think that it's changed over time and what was your objective function? Yeah, so I think my objective function has always been very heavily weighted towards things where I would really like to know the answer to the question or where I think it would be really cool if we were able to do it. So it's, um, I like ambitious things. I like elegant things and I like things that would really be interesting or surprising if we were able to do it well. Um, so like when I was implementing stuff myself during my PhD, I always wanted to start with a baseline that was 10 points below the state of the art and, uh, and figure out a way to make it actually work, for example. Um, uh, or baseline or like initial implementation, let me put it that way. Um, I think now maybe I'm a little bit more heavily focused towards uh, things that can also make a big difference uh, in like society positively, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, I, I'm a little bit more oriented towards, you know, things that would do social good or uh, or other things like this although like within my core uh, my core areas of interest so I think that definitely has changed a bit but not you know dr drastically or completely so you already gave some great advice on branching out and reading in other areas but if you could think back all these years of your experience as a researcher and come up with one piece of advice that doesn't have to be all all-encompassing but just something useful to keep in mind for a new researcher? Yeah, that, that's a good question. It's a question that I have to think about a lot. Um, and because, you know, I'm advising students and I give a lot of individual pieces of advice, um, but maybe 
for this particular one, I will reuse a piece of advice I heard from uh, Makoto Nagao, who is my academic grandfather, and he's the person who invented data-driven machine translation. Um, and his advice was, um, I'm best at solving problems when I just take a long walk outside and stop doing and, and just spend time thinking. Um, and I also can distinctly point to the two points in my thesis. Like one of them I already, I already talked about where I was walking home from a, from a bar and another time when I happened to be uh, stuck outside for like um, an hour or so because I had forgotten my key. <laughs> and so, uh, so basically like both of the best ideas that I had for my PhD thesis were just, you know, um, like stuck when I was stuck, not being able to do anything other than think. So I think, you know, probably making time to do that is, uh, pretty key to coming up with good ideas and, uh, you know, things that might end up being core parts of your PhD thesis or something like that. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, it is in today's busy society. It is hard to sometimes just sit and set aside time to think, sit or walk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for doing this. This was a lot of fun. I think in this conversation, we probably had the most um, potential research ideas to look into that have been uh, kind of not looked into yet. So I'll be going back and listening to this a few times and this was a lot of fun. So thanks so much for coming on the thesis review. Yeah, thanks a lot.